right. That's right. TGIF, it's Manson Mitchell with Gary Manson, Suzanne Mitchell. A double shot of good conversation with great guests to jumpstart your weekend. Manson Mitchell, you're on the air. Thank you, Eric Kramer. Season's greetings, everyone. I'm Gary Mance. I'm Suzanne Mitchell. Together, we are Mance and Mitchell in your ears for the hour, and we're going to have a fun show today. Our buddy Jeffrey Mark is coming back. The walking encyclopedia of Hollywood history, particularly in the classic era. And we're going to talk about all those wonderful Christmas movies that remind us this is the season. But before we get to Jeffrey and all of that good stuff, we want to say hello to bad boy Benny Mathers at the board. Are you in the Christmas spirit yet, Benny? Oh, 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 oh. <laughs> Merry Christmas. Oh, oh. Does that sound pretty good? Do I got it down? Be a, that'd be a big yes. All right. Let me ask you, Benny, because we're not of the same generation. When you think about Christmas movies, what do you look forward to seeing? So this was, uh, I saw your topic come across, you know, earlier, and I was like, man, yeah. so classic is obviously a different classic term for me right, than it would right. be for you guys. So I'm uh, a 77. That's when I was born. That's the that's my baby date. So yep. I still think, though, classic for me would be, well, do I want to give it out now? Uh, yeah, why Go not? Okay, why not? so like the Charlie Brown film. Oh, it's definitely good. top Very three, good. top three, okay. one, two, and three. You can alternate depending on if uh, what mood I'm in. All right. All then right. we'll probably go home alone with a little Macaulay okay. Culkin. Okay. Okay. We're yep, going to go with yep, that. Yep. And it's a wonderful life. Very good. Yeah. Funny you should bring up that one. <laughs> it's an oldie but a goodie. Well, uh, I know uh, yep. Jeffrey has heard this before. Who's guest coming? Our guest coming up. Uh, um, I used to work at the local <laughs> Blockbuster Video for six years. So mm -hmm. the season rush during that time, and we had our giant Christmas wall that I had to, you know, alphabetize every year. And it was up to the manager of the store to design that. Um, and those were definitely up in there in, in probably, you know, any which order, but they still got taken out really quickly. You know what I mean? And everyone yes. was always wondering where they were. And it was like, uh, you know, the AFI top 50 movies they had. Well, this was our Christmas section. So, But I took good, you know, a lot of pride in keeping that yeah. wall Perfect and in uh, for the holiday spirit. Well, very good. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. I had I had done an article one time for a newsletter about you know what is your what's the Christmas movie you look forward to seeing to you know more than any other during mm -hmm. the year, and I had such a wide variety uh -huh. of answers. I figured there would be two or three. No, <laughs> there was like twenty, and yeah. I said, how could there be that many Christmas movies? And people's favorites were all over the place. So we thought it'd be fun to talk Christmas movies today. I think it's a great plan. I do too. And with whom would we discuss them who would know more or share initiation better than Jeffrey Mark? I am just thrilled that he is back with us. I've got a, a brief bio here that really just scratches the surface of what this gentleman is about. Jeffrey Mark has been called a walking encyclopedia of show business history. Honestly, you can't stump the guy. We've said that before. A singer, stand-up comedian in nightclubs and cabarets, and an off-Broadway veteran. Jeffrey has hosted radio series, written comedy, and now writes and produces documentaries and reality shows for cable television. Jeffrey Mark has also has written three best-selling books devoted to Lucille Ball 
Ella Fitzgerald and Ethel Merman. Our special thanks to our buddy Gary Allen for recommending Jeffrey to us in the first place. He made that happen. And so thank you, Gary. And Jeffrey, thank you so much for joining us today. We have been anticipating this for weeks, just knowing that you are the man with the authoritative skinny on all things concerning classic Hollywood at the holidays. Welcome. Well, my skinny is feeling a little skinny this morning. Um, we'll, we'll share with our listeners, our friends out there that when you get booked on shows like this and please forgive folks, I've got that head cold that's going around. So mm. uh, maybe I sound a little more deep and husky today. Uh, but when you get booked on a show like this, it's, it's through a, a publicist or someone who works with you. And um, these lovely people have another show and he got the shows confused. So I was prepared to talk about the Batmobile today and other vehicles. That is what I was prepared to talk about. But how can one be an expert on show business or how could one live in uh, the United States of America in the 20th and 21st centuries and not love Christmas movies? So I'll do my best for you. We can still oh, hit man. up vehicles. Santa's sleigh. I mean, <laughs> come on. And Batman you know, if, and he Robin wasn't, will... if he wasn't so handsome, I'd slap him around. <laughs> <That's right. laughs> the Batmobile will be for another day and another show, actually. Yes, on this because I've, I've met its creator and I've sat in the Batmobile. So, yes, we will talk about that. Oh, my goodness. That is going to be something to look forward to. We will tout it on this broadcast for sure. But today it's classic Hollywood at the holidays. And Jeffrey, let me just rip this from today's online headlines in order to read you a paragraph. I read it yesterday online. That's my show prep, right? And I thought, oh, I said to Suzanne, Jeffrey Mark is going to have something that is contextual and fully appreciative to say about this. I'll just read it to you this way, Jeffrey. One cast member thinks the time is right for a sequel to the classic Christmas film, It's a Wonderful Life. Carolyn Grimes, who played George Bailey's daughter Zuzu, says she could envision a follow-up movie that explores what happened to George and Mary Bailey's children. As I read that to you, Jeffrey, how does that land on your ears? Does cringe have one E or two? <laughs> oh, my God. I thought that's what you'd say. We are on the same page. We are definitely on the same page. Uh, I don't know exactly what year it was that the creative people in Hollywood decided we no longer have to create anything. We're just going to remake yeah. everything that's ever been made. Mm -hmm. And change it just enough so that whatever was good about it originally no longer happens. Yeah. Uh, I, I have not seen reboots that I enjoy all that much. They, they've rebooted a couple of times now. It's a wonderful life. Redoing it with other actors and changing the story. And I don't I don't understand the need for that kind of thing. First of all, the Hallmark Channel every year produces eight or 9,000 new Christmas movies that they run 24 hours a day between Halloween and New Year's Eve. For that alone, we should give them thanks. But no, I, I don't like this business of redoing everything. It's a Wonderful Life probably is number one on most people's lists. And it's there for a reason. Uh, it's there for two reasons, actually. 
One is it's a magical film. The writing, the direction, the acting, the cinematography are incredible. And for those of you who don't know this, uh, the idiots who are in charge of legalities allowed this film in the late 1970s to go out of its copyright so that nobody had to pay any money to show it on television. In New York Mm. City, where I was living at that moment, uh, besides CBS and NBC and ABC, there were three or four local stations. And since it was free to them, they showed It's a Wonderful Life 24 hours a day all through December for free. So every station showed it. Literally, you could just turn the dial back when you did those things and you'd go from one It's a Wonderful Life to another. So baby boomers were just, just this thing rained on you every December. So everybody saw it. It became a part of our consciousness for Christmas. But it is an amazing, amazing, amazing film. As a film, I think that's my favorite Christmas movie. Ah, well, I was going to get around to that question. So, you know, thank you for doing that. And it's likely mine as well. We were talking about so many movies that are either about Christmas or set at Christmas time. And in the whole scheme of things, I think It's a Wonderful Life is is my favorite. However, uh, right alongside that, just probably equal to that, is A Christmas Story. I love Ralphie and his uh, Red Rider BB gun. I just, I laugh once a year. And Gary and I kind of hold off because one of the stations here also plays it for 24 hours on Christmas Eve. And so we won't watch it. Uh, in November or early December, we'll wait. And then we, we have like the one viewing with our hot chocolate and cookies and, and really appreciate it. So I do like a Christmas story. And, and your well. Ovaltine, right? Don't forget your Ovaltine. And my, and my Ovaltine All right, okay. said hot chocolate. I meant <laughs> yeah, right. hot Ovaltine, yeah. Benny. <laughs> a crummy commercial. Oh, <laughs> now, now, I'm going to have to feel like Scrooge here. Because I will tell you that I don't understand that film, meaning I don't understand why that film has endured as this great, great, great Christmas classic. Uh, I think as a film, it is as good as the best of the television things you might see at Christmas time or but as a film. Now, I'm talking about classic filmmaking. It's got some nice characters. It's got a huge story, but uh, I'd rather watch some television things. Can we, is it okay for our purposes to include a few television things too? Or do we only want to talk about things that were actually in cinemas? Yeah, we didn't do TV, but um, certainly include those. Because for baby boomers, I'm, I'm, I'm speaking, it's too bad you guys can't see the video because while all of us are nice looking folks, the man running this thing is just spectacularly handsome. Handsome young man from 1977 um, didn't get to watch what we got to watch. And I think we need to include, without thought, a Charlie Brown Christmas. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think we need to include um, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. Mm-hmm. I think we need to include... Um, Frosty the Snowman? Possibly. possibly. Oh, Really? Well, here's why. Rudolph was the first of those um, 
stop animation. Cla- claymation. 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 Yeah, animation. the early yeah. forms of it, sure. And it was a musical mm-hmm. with original music written for it. The The ones that followed it, I think, followed it because it did so well in the ratings. But uh, Rudolph has so much subtext to it. Uh, almost anyone with a brain who's watching it can see that some of the characters there might be an allegory for any kind of um, discrimination, whether it's by race or sexual orientation or religion, whatever, whatever your minority is, you can see it in that film between the little Twinkie uh, guy who wants to be a dentist and uh, Rudolph getting shunned by the very butch um, uh, captain of the team and his teammates for being different. Uh, I like what that teaches about we all have a place and we're all important and we're all good and don't put anyone down. I, I like the theme of that a lot, an awful lot. And it's brilliantly written and brilliantly voiced because we're talking about things creatively. We can, you know, we can break these down into um, what touches your heart. Which of these films makes you feel like it's Christmas? Or which of these films are really, really, really well made or well acted and are well written? I think if we use different guidelines, we come up with different answers. But Charlie Brown, Rudolph, It's a Wonderful Life, uh, How the Grinch Stole Christmas. Cartoon. I just wrote down How the Grinch Stole Christmas. We were going to jump on that yeah. one. You're a mean one, <laughs> Mr. Grinch. And how many of you out there know that, A, the name of the man who sang that was Gary Thurl knows. Ravenscroft. Yep. And Thurl Ravenscroft, besides singing, You're a mean one, Mr. Grinch, <laughs> also was, They're great. He was Tony of a Tiger as well. Yep. Oh, oh, 77 boy's mouth is open now. He didn't know that. Okay. I did not. <laughs> there you go. There you In go. addition to this, those of you who have been to the Disney properties, yes. both yes, yes, yes. at Disneyland and also the Magic Kingdom here in uh, Orlando, if you go on the Haunted Mansion ride, one of the singing ghosts near the end of that ride, near the climax of that experience, includes these three televised ghost to all appearances where they show up and they're singing this song, this eerie music comes at you. And there's Thurl Ravenscroft right there singing with that basso profundo voice of his. In addition, he appeared in all kinds of a cigar commercial singing cigar commercials. I won't mention the brand because I don't want people buying cigars, but he was, he was one of the Dutch masters who sang for commercials. Um, but goodness, can you imagine going through life with the name Thurl Ravenscroft? What kind of school life that poor man must have had? It's a good thing his voice was very deep. <laughs> yes, his talent carried him, that's for sure. We were looking at some of the really early movies and looking at what was about Christmas or set at Christmas time and didn't know how what your interest was going back to the 1940s. But there was uh, Christmas in Connecticut from 45. I was just going to mention that. I think. Yeah. Miracle on 34th Street, Mm -hmm. 47. The Shop Around the Corner, which became You've Got Mail with Tom Hanks. Shop Around the Corner with James Stewart was 1940. And they didn't 
I, I was surprised they didn't set it in the United States. They set it in Europe. It was, it was like set in, in Europe Hung- for two reasons. Hungary. It was yeah. based on a short story that was set in Europe. They wanted, you know, this this is right at the the the, the cusp of World War II. We hadn't gotten involved in the war yet. Right. When the movie was actually filmed in thirty late thirty nine, uh, hardly had Europe really gotten into it. It was just one year a one year old right. war back then, and they wanted the old world charm, Mister Oberkugen, and uh, the idea of actually so much of what Americans think of as Christmas, the Christmas tree and Santa Claus and all that stuff is really German background. How Americans yes. celebrate yeah. Christmas ethnically is very, very German. So they went to Austria to mm. set it, you know, or Poland to set it where all of those Christmas ideals would have come from originally. And you you missed one, actually, because Shop Around the Corner didn't just jump into You Got Mail. It morphed into In the Good Old Summertime as a musical with Judy Garland and Van Johnson. Where it oh, was really? Absolutely. Oh, okay. Same so, story, but not pen pals. I'm sorry. They were pen pals who didn't. They were pen pals in that, and it, and it happened oh. at Christmas as well. Okay. Um, I like a lot of Christmas films where Christmas is a character in the film, but yeah. it's not the whole plot. Right. Like Christmas in Connecticut. Yeah. Uh, where. You get a good dose of Christmas, but you also get a very good story. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I personally don't like the Christmas films where it's like, this is going to be the best Christmas <laughs> ever. Oh, Jeffrey, I'm with you on that. They all say it. Yeah. And it's, I, th- I think it, it honestly sets people up for disappointment. Uh, good things and bad things happen at Christmas every year. Uh, Christmas is only as good as we can afford to make it or Mm. as good as our attitude is about it. Mm. We don't all have big families. We don't all spend Christmas someplace where we're in a sleigh. In fact, I don't know anybody who's in a sleigh at Christmas anymore. And I I think sometimes the over-sentimentality of it, if that's the right word, hurts the films and it hurts us as viewers. Because it sets up this idea that somehow during the week of Christmas, life gets to be perfect. And it doesn't. No. I think films like um, It's a Wonderful Life show that, that sometimes lives can fall apart at Christmas. Mm -hmm. You know, Ella Fitzgerald recorded a wonderful song about Christmas. She may be the only one who ever recorded it. And it's it, it, the 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 line in the song I like about so much is it, it's not the things that we do at Christmas it's the Christmas things that we do every day and I mm. like I like the films that not instruct but encourage us to be better people to treat each other better not just for a day to get presents but like you know be better people. Those are the films. I, th- I think it's a wonderful life. I think a Charlie Brown Christmas does that. I think yes. um, the Rudolph yeah. television thing does that. Mm. Uh, the Grinch thing, his his figuring out that it didn't matter to the people in Whoville what they had, as long as they were together and had love, that was the whole point. Those are the ones that appeal to me the most. Mm. 
Another one set at Christmas time is trading places. Although the uh, climax really happens at New Year's with the uh, report of the orange crop, <laughs> but uh, but it, but there's a lot that's going on right around Christmas time too. And again, it, it's just a character in the movie since the movie isn't about Christmas; it's about uh, what, what happens to these two guys. And a and a strong socioeconomic statement with that is uh, that involves even hints of racial. Oh, sure. problems oh, yeah. the idea of racism oh, yeah. and classism shows yep. up in yep. a way that i thought was very nicely done yeah no i agree uh and look at the actors in that film look at the oh. acting talent you've got saying those lines mm-hmm. um you know three generations of actors working together the the film that that's a film where you say it was brilliantly brilliantly cast because they could have gone in 500 other directions especially with the lead characters, you know, with, with uh, Eddie and Danny Aykroyd and the two wonderful classic Hollywood actors who are uh, really the backbone of the film. And they could have gone with television actors or more contemporary actors, but they went for the, the gold to two men who were, you know, just, just so well known in the thirties and forties and fifties for their film work. And, it makes the film as a whole work better. Casting is so important in a film. I don't mean to put down any particular actor. I'm going to use one as an example. Uh, when they remade It's a Wonderful Life for television, and they, they put Marlo Thomas in the, the, the lead character. Marlo's a fine woman, and I'm sure we all enjoyed that girl. But uh, she's not James Stewart. Uh, and the other people they had in the cast were not the same. It's the same uh, Miracle on 42nd Street, on 34th Street, rather. Uh, mm-hmm. No, I, I had a Miracle on 42nd Street, but we can't talk about that. Miracle on 34th Street, uh, when they've redone it for television or they've remade it as a film, you can't, you know, how do you find another Natalie Wood? How do you find right. another Edmund Gwen to play Santa Claus? Yeah. You don't. You get other people who do other things that are reminiscent of the original, but you can't beat the original. This gives me an opportunity, and I think it will take us to our break here, Jeffrey. So uh, with your permission, I would like to ask you to fill people in, many of whom are simply not going to be aware. I'm somewhat aware myself, but I would love to know more of the backstory. We had Don Amici, who was big in Hollywood, and then we had no Don Amici in Hollywood, and then we had the elder Don Amici, the elderly, who came up, remember Cocoon? There, and Don Amici came back. What happened in his life to create this segmented career with that years-long gap? Well, there wasn't the gap you think there was. we have to give a one minute primer on what happened in Hollywood period, not just the Don Amici, but to everybody. The movie industry that we think of was built on the premise that all of these different movie studios had in their employ on a regular basis, actors and directors and writers and craftspeople. They also owned movie theaters all across the country. They had guaranteed outlets for their films and it became a factory. You know, every week another film came out. Well, 
there was an antitrust lawsuit done and they were told they could not own these theaters anymore. Well, when you couldn't guarantee a film would be seen anywhere in particular, the system began to fall apart. And concurrently, almost at the same moment, television was rearing its ugly-headed films and you no longer had to leave your living room or your bedroom to go see Lucille Ball or Donna Reed. You could watch them at home. A lot of these people who were big stars, matinee idols, gorgeous in the 30s. Well, now it's 20 or 25 years later. They're middle-aged. They're not leading people anymore. And a lot of these folks made the transition over to television or back to Broadway, or they toured in shows, or they were on the panel of To Tell the Truth. So it's not like he disappeared. He had his own TV series. He was a regular on To Tell the Truth daytime. He was uh, on Broadway and musicals. He was touring in things. He was doing episodic television. And he happened to get cast in something that brought him back into, oh, now we can get this guy to play the handsome old guy with the twinkle in his eye. So he was very lucky in that he aged well. He was very talented man. And he rode out the ride. Uh, unless there was something in, in particular about his personal life I'm not hitting on that you were hoping I'd talk about. It came to my attention by reading a little bit about Don Amici that he did not want to, and I couldn't even swear uh, my life to the idea that he had children. I'm assuming he was a fine family man because the story, as I heard it, was that he just didn't want to raise his children, so these people said, in Hollywood around that Babylonian culture on the West Coast, it was just not the atmosphere for him as a husband and father. Is there any truth to that? Uh, it is true that he moved to New York. It is true that New York became his base of operations, oh, from the late 50s through the mid to late 60s. But the man was not, I mean, his kids must, I could look it up, but I, his kids must have been, well, maybe they were teenagers. Maybe at that point, it wasn't the little kids he was worried about. It was children becoming young adults. He didn't want them around Hollywood. But I, I also believe thoroughly that that sounds great. It gives a great press release. But I would imagine if um, his home studio of 20th Century Fox was still willing to hire him at several thousand dollars a week to star in films, I think he would have stayed in Hollywood and found a way to raise his children and protect mm -hmm. them from... No, I, I think he went where his career had to go. I don't think he gave up Hollywood. I think what I just said is a lot more true. He aged and the, the, the industry changed and he went where the work was, which happened to a lot of people uh, like Joan Fontaine did exactly the same thing. You found Joan Oscar winner Joan Fontaine on to tell the truth as a regular because that's the work she could get at that moment in her career. Well stated, Jeffrey Mark. Thank you. Let's take our one and only break of this hour. Man, I feel like we just scratched the surface on this wonderful topic, this theme of classic Hollywood at the holidays. So much more to share. Uh, one listener kindly, uh, Carol, has written, and Suzanne will mention what she had to say about it. She has her favorite, and I have one to bring up that we have not discussed yet. This is fun at the holidays. 
days. Jeffrey Mark is our honored guest of the hour. We're going to take a couple minutes break and be right back here on Seattle's home of alternative talk at Christmas time at the holidays. This is AM 1150. Stick with us. Hi, everybody. This is Anson Williams from Happy Days, and I'm so excited to tell you about American Road. It is the best car travel magazine in the world. They have the most fantastic adventures detailed in each magazine with all your itinerary. We could just jump in the car with your family and have the most fabulous adventures you've ever had in your life. Please get a copy of American Road and start your own adventure. Staying connected with Gary Mance and Suzanne Mitchell is easy. Just go to manceandmitchell.com for the latest info on topics and guests. Friend Gary Mance and Suzanne Mitchell on their Facebook pages and like the Mance and Mitchell show page at facebook.com slash manceandmitchell. If you're on Twitter, share a follow with Gary and Suzanne at Mance Mitchell. Join Gary and Suzanne Friday and Saturday mornings at 10 a.m. for an unusual show that covers everything from personal growth to the paranormal. Here's an amazing act. Here's a tremendous act. Here's a startling act. The amazing, the thrilling, the greatest, spectacular, incredible, exciting, wonderful, world fame, most unusual novelty act. The home of the A-Team of Alternative Talk is ManceAndMitchell.com. Heard right here on Alternative Talk 1150 AM or streaming live from your computer anywhere. Terry Loving wants to help you with your online marketing challenges right now. She has several courses she is giving away to help you get your business working for you online. Yes, giving away. WordPress websites are her specialty, yet her technical skills go way beyond that. Check out her blog at terryloving.com or email her directly at terry at terryloving.com. That's terry at terryloving.com. On Friday, Manson Mitchell welcomed Jeffrey Mark for a fun-filled hour of classic Christmas movie conversation. It's Hollywood at the Holidays. On Saturday, Mark Anthony, the psychic lawyer, returns for part two of our interview about his must-read new book, The Afterlife Frequency. Bringing you mastery and mystery since 2007. We are Manson Mitchell, Friday and Saturday mornings at 10 on Alternative Talk, AM 1150. Need help getting started with self-help? You came to the right place. Alternative Talk, 1150. Welcome back to Manson Mitchell. We're dreaming of a white Christmas. We won't see it because we live in Florida. But we have our guest, Jeffrey Mark. We are talking about Christmas movies today. Jeffrey, if people are interested in um, connecting with you, you've got a Facebook page, have you not? I have a Facebook page. I am on Instagram. I am on Twitter. I'm on your toaster. I'm on your electric toothbrush, wherever you can find electronic things. You'll find Jeffrey Mark. Okay. And I just want to make sure everybody knows that Jeffrey is G-E-O-F-F-R-E-Y-M-A-R-K. Jeffrey Mark. Find him on all those social media things. And uh, Holiday Inn, was Holiday Inn always Holiday Inn? Because I see it listed as Holiday Inn and I see it as White Christmas. Is that the same movie or two, two different ones? completely different movies oh. that both have one thing in common. Bing Crosby. And the song White Christmas. Uh-huh. There you go. <laughs> the song White Christmas was written by Irving Berlin for the film Holiday Inn. Uh, Holiday Inn is a film with uh, Bing Crosby and Fred Astaire. And it's a film about um, 
two partners fighting over a girl who are in show business. And the, he opens up an inn where they celebrate all the holidays of the year, including Christmas. And that's where the song comes in. White Christmas was another one of those, let's take Irving Berlin's old songs and make a new movie about it. Uh, Mr. Berlin did write new songs for White Christmas. That was Bing Crosby and Danny Kaye and wonderful Rosemary Clooney. And um, of the two, I think as a film, White Christmas works better. Uh, but how can you not want to watch Fred Astaire do anything? So I watched yeah. them both every year at Christmas time. Yeah. You know, when you were describing the films, Jeffrey, I was remembering both of them individually. It was funny because when I was looking online, I thought, White Christmas and Holiday Inn, I think somebody got confused. That's the same film. It turned out it was you. <laughs> it was me who was confused. And that's it. It's an innocent mistake. That's what I think Moira Rose would call a Christmas cinematic conflation. <laughs> so, and that's the way that worked out. But here's one. And we've got Carol from Manchester who called in and, and uh, prompted us not to forget a certain film. We do want to get to that. Thank you for calling in, Carol. Let me lay this at the feet of Jeffrey Mark. We would love to have your appreciation and your evaluation of something you mentioned earlier in this interview, which was a film at Christmas time, set at Christmas time, that tells a bigger story, larger framework, larger context. And when you said that, my mind instantly went to a very popular film that was set in St. Louis. Yes. If you hadn't brought it up, I would have. Please do tell Judy Carlin, that wonderful song and that bigger story, Meet Me in St. Louis. What do you think of it, Jeffrey? I think that my friend Margaret O'Brien would bop me on the head if I didn't mention her name immediately mm. because mm -hmm. Judy Garland is magic. That's all there is. To, you don't have to say more than that. That <laughs> the wonderful people at MGM, Hugh Martin, wrote have yourself a merry little christmas it's not a merry song have yourself a merry little christmas is about loss at christmas time you know someday soon we may all be together if the fates allow until then we'll have to muddle through somehow and those have are the original words yeah the original words yeah. Uh, and Judy is gorgeous in the film. Her husband, Vincent Manelli, directed her in it. That's where they fell in love. But what then takes that song and that film one step extra is that Margaret O'Brien is a genius. And she's the one who gets hysterical and runs out of the bedroom and goes downstairs and smashes all of her snow people if she can't take them with her, nobody else is getting them. And I think it's, it's that combo of Judy and Margaret. Uh, Judy was almost handing Margaret O'Brien the mantle of ch child actor supreme. As Judy was now a young woman in films, Margaret was now the MGM child star. And uh, it, it is one of those films right, that's just perfect. I think Mimi in St. Louis is, take away the wizard of oz and take away a star is born maybe the best film judy garland ever made wow and maybe the best High film margaret o'brien ever made and 
every year when I hear people singing Have Yourself a Merry Little Christmas, all I can think of is that scene in the film. Mm-hmm. And I cry mm-hmm. because I miss people I can no longer be with at Christmas time. And I mm-hmm. hear from so many people how they're muddling through holidays, especially this year. Mm. And the song resonates. Uh, Christmas movies and Christmas sentiment aren't always about perfection. Sometimes it's about the opposite. It's about Christmas tragedy. What was that about the changed lyric? They, uh, in, in order to make it saleable as a standalone record, apparently, and you would know better than me, Jeffrey, the the musician authorities said, we can't have that, we'll muddle through somehow, so we'll hang a a star on the highest bow, became the new words for that, just so they could sell records. There were a couple of other small uh, lyric changes that, that most people who have recorded the song recorded it the positive way. Right, uh, right. Just so that if you had a Christmas album, you weren't making people cry. Um, Or if they didn't change the lyrics, the next song was blue Christmas. Well, if you're crying already here, keep crying. (laughs) um, No, I, 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 the original lyric as written is so poignant. Yes, it is. And as I punched home a couple of times today, uh, Christmas time can be a very unhappy time for a lot of people. And the songs and the films, since we're talking about films, that reflect that it's not always perfect, I think are sometimes the better Christmas films because it's about the indomitable human spirit and the spiritual spirit that overcomes adversity that I think is as much a part of the Christmas story as, you know, chestnuts roasting on an open fire. And please, Jeffrey, to the extent that you're willing and able to share, what are one or two of the things that Margaret O'Brien, your friend, told you about the making of that film and her place in it and her interactions with Judy Garland. What was that like for her? She and Judy really got along. They, Judy understood exactly what Margaret was about. People like Judy Garland, Shirley Temple, Mickey Rooney, Margaret O'Brien, when you're that talented, that young, Part of it is God-given talent, but part of it is also, I guess it's also God-given, God-given awareness for small children to understand the mechanics of making films, who understand that it's work, who understand, who work so hard at such a young age. Remember, Judy or Mickey or Shirley or Margaret at five or seven or 10 or 12 or 15 were expected to work as hard as the adults around them, were expected to be as professional as the adults around them. Um, And Judy understood it. She understood what Margaret was going through. She understood being a child genius. So there was no problem between them at all. Margaret's raison d'etre for that scene was they would tell her that her favorite dog had been killed in a car accident to get her to cry. Mm, She was a willing participant. It wasn't that she believed the dog was dead. It's that they used that kind of like a mantra to get the tears to flow, to get her in the mood for 
you know, this, the scene coming up. And mm. Margaret is an exceptional actor at any age. She's gifted, talented woman, and very, very, very intellectual, as was Judy Garland. Uh, they didn't get much of an education, either one of them, but natively, very intelligent women. Um, so you had a lot of esprit de corps on that film, uh, especially one of the very few uh, Judy Garland films where there was no big trauma. Uh, Judy did not want to be in the film because once again, she was playing a teenager, but they showed her that in the story, you're, you're blossoming into a woman and uh, the scenes where she's, you know, they're, they're figuring out how to be devastating to men is adult enough for her. And uh, it was, it was a good experience for everybody concerned. And, I can find no fault in that film. Uh, when, when they do the Halloween thing and uh, they're, they're eating cake and ice cream, I can taste the cake. I can taste the ice cream. It's so real. Well, thank you for that. That is a wonderful appreciation of a great film. And that, that may be my favorite Christmas song, which I've said before here. I just, I love that song. If it comes on the radio. It, you don't say touching. a word around it's Suzanne touching. Mitchell. She, yeah. she wants to. See here every intonation, every syllable of, of the non-religious Christmas songs. That is my favorite. All right, we got that in common. Let me say very briefly, <laughs> as we and thank you for that, Jeffrey. As we move on, let me just say, uh, Carol from Manchester. I hope you're listening. I remember taking a Christmas time vacation to Hawaii back in 1992. I was in another relationship, and we were trying to figure out what to do of an afternoon. So there I was on the windward side of Oahu going into a mall theater in order to see how the Muppets would handle a Christmas carol. And we're there in Hawaii. I'll never forget it. We thoroughly enjoyed it. And that is the way of segueing, Jeffrey, into our next topic within a topic here, which is all the people who have played Scrooge, all the iterations, all the nuances of that immortal character. What is your assessment? of who did it in a certain way that pleased you. I can't think of anyone where I'd say, well, he, that was a bum performance. I don't mean it that way. But every actor that took on Scrooge had to do it a certain way in order to stand out and provide their own nuance. How do you see it? Well, first of all, you're talking about a character written by Dickens. So you, you've got incredible source material. It's This, this is not... Uh, good gosh, it's 3.30, it's 85 degrees out, I'm working for a production company, I got to come up with something. Yeah, let, 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 let me come up with some old bastard who hates Christmas and uh, <laughs> we'll make a film about that. No, this, this, the story is so rich, all the characters are so rich. that un unless your writers are morons, the story has to be very good. As an actor to play Scrooge, it requires someone with enormous, enormous range because almost always the men playing the part are much younger than the part calls for. All of them are in heavy makeup and prostheses to look old and ugly and, and uh, as if this was Dickensian England. And yet, if the actor is so... Uh, married to being uh, 
mean and nasty and selfish and heartless, then he can't, there has to be a moment, that moment of, of, oh my goodness, for Scrooge. The way it is for the Grinch, by the way, there are, there are a lot of, um, you know, his heart all of a sudden becomes three times bigger. All of a sudden, Scrooge sees the light and takes delight in Christmas and takes delight in Bob Cratchit and his family. If you're not a good actor, you'll do well with one or you'll do well with the other, but you won't do well with both. So the, the Scrooges through the years have required men with great range in their abilities because there are wonderful character actors out there who are great at being mean or great at being sweet and warm and glowing. Very few who can do both. And um, we've been lucky. Producers and directors and casting people have found us a lot of great Scrooges through the years. I can't look at one and go, that's a bum acting job of any of them. I liked Bill Murray's version. I, I just liked Bill Murray. And I thought he did great. Scrooged. <laughs> yes, Scrooged. that's right. And if any, and you know, I could be way off base here, Jeffrey, but I'll just put this out there for conversational purposes. I can look at Bill Murray and, and say, here is a guy who was brave enough to take that risk of really bringing out the cynical meanness of a character in a modern setting for that story. Bill Murray is so underrated as an actor. I don't know why people don't catch on that. Yeah. He got started in the second season of Saturday Night Live in 1976. And yeah, another sketch actor who went and made movies. But look at the breadth of what he has done through the years and continue. He's still working. Mm -hmm. um, where there are other people from Saturday Night Live who are not still working. Uh, they had perhaps one or two or three or four hit films and maybe another dozen that didn't do so well. Bill Murray is a surprise every time he's up there. It's not the same performance. It's not, he's not playing Billy Murray everywhere he goes. He is a fine, fine actor. And it's not a surprise to me that anyone would choose him as their favorite. He's not necessarily my favorite, but how can you not enjoy the performance? I liked it. Who did you like for Scrooge? Of all of them, the one that comes back to me, and this was when I was still a teenager, so maybe it's one part nostalgia here, but my God, the brilliance of the performance, Albert Finney. Yes. I loved Albert Finney. And you know what, what moved me about his performance in that role was, and we're going back to the early 70s here, was that there was a point in that film, and I'm trying to recollect it because I haven't seen it for a long time, in which momentarily his spirits brightened because the townsfolk, the people who knew him, seemed so happy at the mention of his name. He was looking at Christmas future. And as he's led into this vision, he sees these people delighted to be talking about him. And it gladdens his heart until he realizes that they were celebrating his demise. And I thought, wow, what a perfect way of having Scrooge punctured in that way so that he was open to realizing the implications of his lifelong behavior. Now, you, you, you've picked out my favorite. That is also, uh, of all of the performances, maybe again, age, because you and I are, are about the same age, 
mm -hmm. uh, remembering seeing that as a teenager and and really really enjoying it so uh maybe because it was in color it wasn't in black and white i wasn't old enough none of us probably listening were old enough to have seen most of the classic uh dickens films about scrooge uh they were made in the 30s they were made in the 40s they were made in the 50s before we were born albert finney's version other than some television things I'm, I'm thinking out loud here might have been the first contemporary one we could have seen in a movie theater as a new film maybe that's why baby boomers it strikes baby boomers that way because we got to sit in a theater and watch it. We weren't watching these old black and white films that are cut up and then commercials are interrupting them every 15 minutes, uh, 11 o'clock at night on channel 47 when we're, you know, staying up all night to watch Christmas things. But uh, yes, I, I really enjoy Albert Finney's version of, of the character a lot. Very, very heartwarming. Absolutely so. We covered about a dozen films today, and I'm wondering if there's one we left out that you wish we had asked about. Oh, good God. Well, I'll tell you a couple I didn't like. I did not like the live action version of, of uh, The Grinch. Okay. Um, I have, yeah, I've never seen it all the way through. I don't care for it either. All the way through tells us everything we need to know about how you feel about it. Yeah. Um, I'm trying to think of bad, bad Santa. Oh my goodness. <laughs> Nightmare before Christmas. I mean, there are a couple that, you know, are crazy. Leave it to Tim Burton. I'm going Jack yeah. Skellington. Okay. I'm trying to follow this. <laughs> there are also some Christmas episodes of television series. Oh, yeah. I we particularly like. Oh, we didn't talk about that. What did you like? Well, I'll give you my favorite and I'll give you the why. Okay. And it's not something a lot of people watch. Um, the Lucy show, mm -hmm. the second Lucille Ball, actually the third Lucille Ball TV series, the one that co-starred Vivian Vance, where they lived in a little town in upstate New York called Danfield. And uh, Ms. Ball was a widow with two kids. Ms. Vance was a television's first divorcee with a son and the first season, they did a, a brilliant script written by my friends, Bob Schiller and Bob Weisskopf. Um, they set it up that Lucy and Viv have never celebrated Christmas together. They've all, Lucy's gone to Jamestown to her mother. Viv has gone to Philadelphia to her uncle Ned. But this year, the two families decide to celebrate it together. And it brought up something that as a Jewish kid, Oh, I saw that from the very beginning and always wondered why nobody ever wrote about it, which is we talk about Christmas in America as though everybody celebrates it exactly the same way. Mm -hmm. And as an outsider looking in, it's like, wait a minute, I've got friends who open their Christmas, their presents Christmas Eve. I have friends who open at Christmas morning. I have friends, the big meal is Christmas Eve or the big meal is Christmas day. They go to church midnight mass. They go to church Christmas morning. They go to church Christmas night. And I never heard anyone refer to the differences. And this episode, Lucy Carmichael is all about the old fashioned green tree and moth eaten old Christmas ornaments and tradition. Viv is all about a, a, a white tree and brand new ornaments. And they even fight over what they're going to eat and how they're going to stuff the turkey. And 
it really brought out an American thing that no one had written about before and that their compromise is part of the spirit of Christmas, which is love. That it doesn't matter when you open the gifts, whether we eat ham or turkey, or whether you have cornbread stuffing or oyster dressing, the point is to share it together and fill your heart with love. That's my favorite Christmas episode of a TV series. And uh, very few people watch it, and I don't know why. And one more film, particularly one scene, was at the film Avalon, where they were going to celebrate Christmas together, if I have it correctly. Here again, I'm going back a ways. And a relative was delayed through no fault of their own. And the tradition within that larger family was you don't cut the turkey until everybody is present. But on this particular Christmas, they did. And the relative who was late to the party was taking it very, very personally because there are some traditions you simply do not break. Everybody celebrates it their own way, including families. Yes. And again, being brought up Jewish, um, we didn't celebrate anything having to do with Christmas uh, at all. So all I could do, maybe that's why I can speak so well about all of this, because I saw Christmas through Hollywood's eyes. There were Mm. no Mark family traditions about Christmas. So to me, Christmas was what MGM and RKO and 20th Century Fox and Universal and CBS and NBC and ABC told me it was. Um, Not what I actually lived. And I wonder, even among our friends and fans who are listening, who do celebrate Christmas or who are Christian, uh, how many of them really know Christmas through what the media has told them as opposed to what their family experience has been? And I wonder if if that family experience also colors how we feel about these films. Thank you again, Jeffrey Mark. You're always such a joy to have with us. You've just given me an idea. I'm going to write a letter to my congressman, Vern Buchanan here in Sarasota, Florida. I'm going to tell him I would love to see a live action version on the floor of Congress, Festivus, especially the airing of grievances. (laughs) Now that that would be a show. (laughs) Yeah, that would be a one-time only show, I'm afraid. (laughs) And thank goodness for that. (laughs) Thank you, Jeffrey Mark. Thank you. Always have something Hollywood-related to talk to you, show business, and the greats of show business, whether they're on film, in song, you name it. You are the man, and you are welcome on our program anytime at all. I love being with you. Uh, to our friends out there, whatever you're celebrating this month, please enjoy it and please be healthy and happy and all those good things because we don't sprinkle love everywhere. What is the point of any of this? Well, he said, said it well. Stay tuned for Christine Upchurch and later uh, American Road Trip Talk with host Gary Mann. Season's greetings, everyone. <laughs>